0: as a leader, you have to adapt your behavior more to make room for other people's authenticity. So I think that's really, really important from a leader perspective. And then as an individual, what I would say is there's so much that we can be doing. Like I have a a model, which I'm happy to share in our conversation today that I talk a lot about online called the three selves, but essentially it's about us courageously, despite feeling the fear of bias and judgment coming our way. Because I can tell you based on my work and research, it's the fear of bias. You're gonna judge me, you're gonna take opportunities away. You're gonna take love away. You're gonna take your friendship away. If I show you or tell you who I actually wanna love and who I am and how I really would speak and how I would really dress and what my opinions are, you're gonna take all your love and affection and opportunities away. It's the fear of bias and judgment that causes us to suppress our authenticity
3: how you day how you day that was the voice of ritu ritu and i were so involved in our passionate conversation you're going to listen to this podcast and you're going to hear a conversation with seemingly two friends but this was the first time we met and i loved the passion that we shared because it's really about interrupting supremacy culture and for those that don't know what supremacy culture is you're going to find out in the podcast but it is really around this idea of systems of oppression that don't limit other forms of identity, specifically non-white identities. We talk about the intersections of our identities, the intersections of our childhoods and how we broke past the supposed to be versions of ourselves and became people that defined the who we are meant to be versions of ourselves. There's a distinction. Sometimes you, you end up being who you're supposed to be based on what people have shared with you and that view oftentimes is limited. In the times in your life when you just realize you are actually meant to break past whatever stereotypes exist about your ethnicity, your gender, your gender identity, your national, your role. And what do you do beyond that? What do you do when you find and come to that realization? So it's a beautiful episode. It's very conversational, but I encourage you to check out her work. She's done a lot of work. She's a colleague of mine in the sense that we both work with organizations on dismantling the systems of oppression but she has her way of doing it and i think you're going to really enjoy it it's very unapologetic but it's also educational so i hope you enjoy the episode check us out on youtube as well my youtube is Tayo and t-a-y-o-r-o-c-k-s-o-n and please continue to leave reviews be vocal about it that's how we grow that's how it gets more visible and more opportunities thank you so much enjoy the episode Welcome everyone to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is Ritu Basin. Now, Ritu is someone who is very, very interested because she shares a lot of the same philosophies as I do. And the main goal that she has is to interrupt supremacy cultures, as she likes to say. But she's also someone who is involved in helping to create more empowered, more inclusive and more inspired worlds by unlocking the authenticity that is often stripped in the environments that we have. She wants everyone to experience that freedom and that magic that comes with living in one's truth professionally. She does a lot of things. She's been someone who's worked on Bay Street, which is the, the version of Wall Street for those of you that don't know, but I believe Bay Street is in Canada. I know you correct me if hey, I'm
0: other Canada. Yes.
3: Yes. And she's a business owner. She's an author. She's a speaker. She's a life coach. She is someone who is going to help you feel a lot better today. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Tayo.
3: Pleasure is mine. The pleasure is mine. I gave a little bit of your background there, but haven't done research, I feel like your story is going to illuminate to the audience why you are great for this. So how did you end up learning how to embrace who you truly are?
0: Oh, wow. Big opening question. Hi. I had to, I had to. I,
3: I've listened to enough of your interviews to know that there are a series of stories. And so I just wanted to open it wide enough for you to start off with where you felt.
0: Okay. I love where we're starting, but you know, to start there, I think we have to go back right to the beginning for me. And like, I think a lot of us, my struggle to belong, to be seen, to understood, to be valued, all of that started at a really young age. So I'm the child of, Immigrant parents, my parents immigrated to Canada. You'll hear the Canadian in me as I speak. They immigrated to Canada now over 50 years ago. And we are Punjabi by culture and Sikh by faith. And when I say Sikh by faith, my faith is called Sikhi or Sikhism. I am a Sikh. It's spelled S-I-K-H pronounced Sikh, not Sikh. Sikh is how colonizers pronounced it. And we are trying to decolonize language. My father was a turban, has a beard, the full deal. And I have the quintessential upbringing as a child of immigrants, where my parents came to Canada with very little money, left all their belongings and family and stuff back home to start a new life. And they came back in like the early 70s. They were like the lonely only, like they stood out as Punjabi immigrants, like everything from the clothing they wore to the turban on my father's head, my mom's long hair, to the thick accents. To being rejected for job opportunities, to having like horrible racist names screamed at them on the street, and so much more. They had their struggle. Me and my siblings were born a few years after they arrived. Then that's where the real struggle for me was identity formation started because to say that I was confused growing up culturally would be an understatement. Like I was straddling white Canadiana while trying to understand Punjabi Indian culture, my parents were like, no, no, you should really embrace white Canadian and be Canadian. No, no, no. How dare you be that Canadian and that white? Don't talk to me like the white kids talk to their parents as if that stuff's going to roll in our household. And then at the same time, I unfortunately endured years of relentless racist childhood bullying that was deeply traumatic. And I can tell you, even now I've had over 20 years of therapy, Tayo, like 20 years of healing work I have been doing. And my heart still carries the wounds, the rejection and the experiences I had. And so that was just me as a little kid, let alone what I experienced then joining big law. Like I became a lawyer and I worked in the towers for over a decade. And as a young brown woman navigating corporate culture, like I struggled there. It's just, My story to find belonging and to embrace who I am started from a place of hurt and woundedness.
3: I love that you're saying that because many people in the audience, a lot of times people call themselves TCK, third culture kids, right? They identify with multiple cultures or immigrant parents or, you know, first generation. I believe you said it should be second generation in one of your interviews. Yeah. Second generation immigrants who talk about this, right? Even I've shared a lot of my story about dealing with the bullying I wasn't physically bullied, but I was always emotionally bullied. And physically, I was into sports and all those things. So, you know, no one would ever think this guy's the athlete. But when they would say, you know, your food smells or you're too black or we would never date you because of what it is. You sound funny.
0: I thought you're ugly all the time.
3: I went to boarding school for high school. They cut up my clothes and, you know, put a lotion and you never know who it is. They will just constantly try to get you to be out of your things, your element rather. So it's interesting. You were going through that. You go to therapy right now. You work through all those moments and then you do this thing where I've also heard you say you get the job that you're supposed to get, but even that job that you're supposed to get, isn't the job that you wanted to do because you wanted to do social justice initially.
0: Oh yeah. So I want to go back to something that you said, Tyle, that I think is so important, which is that because what you just shared about your own story with boarding school and being bullied, first of all, I'm sorry you had those experiences and my heart goes out to you and I I'm, I can relate. Like What you said resonates with me so deeply. I was not physically bullied either. But as I talk about my first book, The Authenticity Principle, and I'm actually writing a book on belonging now, and I'm digging deep into the impact of bullying. Same. <laughs> we have so much to talk about. Like, this is conversation one, to be continued. Yes, <laughs> Wearing the scars of being bullied. I was emotionally bullied and actually I was tormented for years and years. I was tormented and... We, as you know, from the work that you do, and I'm sure many other guests have shared this, but we know from neuroscience, we know from research that when we as humans and we're animals experience social isolation, alienation, rejection, it literally hurts us in our body. Like we feel hurt and pain. And I would argue for me... That alienation, social isolation that I felt, the wounds of that, I still carry them because I feel them now and things that happen in my life. So I just, I wanted to name that, just honor that. And For people listening today, watching, like if you feel ever like, wow, am I the only one or I'm the only one feeling this way? Know that even you could be teaching this shit like me and Tyler and still hurt because Healing is a lifelong journey. It is not a destination. It's not like, oh, okay. Like I went to like five therapy sessions then I did like a yoga weekend and like I read a spell book and now I'm healed. It's like not like that.
3: You know, it's so funny. I, as you were doing the accident, it reminded me of another form of colonization where a lot of people will use Indian traditions, like, you know, all these things. And then you call it wellness, right? But to your point, it wasn't until recently. It was actually until the pandemic that I actually admitted to myself that I, I was bullied because I used to just shove it in And say, you know, people just use words. But I had decades, all through my middle school, high school, it was always fighting, multiple areas. And in my head, I was like, well, I mean, I did all the sports, I I got the grades and all these things, but I suppressed them. I never told people what it was. And even when I was hurt, I didn't say anything. But I started getting panic attacks, by the way, in high school. I went through anxiety and depression throughout middle school and high school, but I never verbalized it until my adult years. Because one, I didn't know what it was. And then two, if you think about toxic masculinity, I just did, I was like, ah, <laughs> it is what it is. Oh
0: my gosh, I could go on and on. Uh, and in fact, I talk about this in my second book, which will be out next year, about the intersection between toxic masculinity and white supremacy, because they go hand-hand in for men of color, how the intersection between consistently experiencing racism and then patriarchy and toxic masculinity cause silencing. And so you and I can dig into that and
3: we'll move on to the professional question but the reason why i love this connection here is because when i created this podcast back in 2014 there wasn't enough language around this idea right a lot of people will talk we always used to talk about belonging but it was in a different way but throughout the years we started to really dive into the elements of belonging which is the yoga we just brought up yoga and you said Sikh versus sick right even just the name change pronouncing all these things. all these subtle things the subtle forms of erasure
0: yes so a few things based on what you said. And then, yes, let's talk about professional stuff. You and I are like separated at birth. Hi. Hi. (laughs) For years and years. So I have been a professional speaker. Like I've been speaking for like decades, but like, I mean, as in like a paid professional speaking speaker on stages, I have been doing this for 12 years. And I would say it was only about six years ago. I started talking about my experiences with bullying. And the reason I did not talk about it is because of shame. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed that I had had these experiences. It's not my fault that I was bullied. I mean, I was just a young brown girl trying to make her way through life as a kid. I did not call for it. I did not ask for it. I did not want it. But it happened. And I was just so embarrassed and ashamed to talk about it which is why the healing work that I have done, and by the way, when I say healing work, I mean, and this is another place where I think we can really directly speak to how white supremacy is ruining the world when it comes to healing, because I spend a lot of time on healing, both for myself to do better and live better and take care of myself, but also in the empowerment inclusion work that I do. As part of it, I'm studying to be a trauma professional, not because I'm actually going to be a trauma therapist, but because it dovetails so well. We know increasingly from research, and by the way, when I say research, like let's even call out white supremacist underpinnings of this. So many of us who are listening and watching today come from ancient civilizations. For thousands of years, our people used practices like yoga, pranayama, which is breathwork, Tai Chi, humming, drumming, sweat lodges, I mean, medicines from the earth. And those practices were co-opted, vilified, culturally appropriated. Hello, the whitewashing of yoga globally. It was against the law. When the British colonized India, they made yoga illegal. When the British were in the West Indies, they made drumming illegal. So it's like our healing practices were literally criminalized and we were demonized for using them. However, now the white world is all over our practices and we are too ashamed to go back to our practices. So I think one of the things that one of my key messages in healing is let us never shy away from going back to our ancestral roots and reclaiming our roots to help us to heal because our ancestors knew and let us in tandem interrupt the cultural appropriation of our practices. And so I'm going to be talking more and more about how we as South Asians, we as Indians need to reclaim yoga. That's for another thing. So much of what you just said, Tayo, resonated with me. I just wanted to make those comments.
3: This is why I like having conversation on podcasts, because when I opened the question like that, this is what I envisioned happening, because there's no way to ask a specific question without opening it up that way and then drawing the parallels from there. And I was like, yeah, Through is going to be the best person to do this with. And to your point, there's a lot of reclaiming that needs to happen because there's been a lot of legislation against people's identities, people's cultural heritages. I mean, for goodness sake, we have people changing their names. I'm a professor as well. And so it always breaks my heart seeing this.
0: Of course you're a professor, athlete, hey, look, author, consultant.
3: Hey, just mirror, just mirroring. And so one of the things I always break my heart, and it's always hard. Not every student does this. Is when I see students from, from different backgrounds, particularly China in my case here, they always come ready with an English name because they've already assumed. Yes. And even it's not even just assumed, they've been told sometimes that no one's gonna be able to pronounce a name. So just give yourself a name. And so some will, you know, say, Oh yeah, it's okay, you know, just call me this. And some When I ask if I can call them by their Chinese name, they'll say, okay, yeah, sure, you can call me. And so it's always that back and forth, but even just having to apologize for who you are is what you had to do in the professional field. Apologies for yourself. You were successful conventionally, and then for some reason you had a turning point. What was that turning point?
0: I decided at a young age to that I was going to commit my life to social justice and activism. But back then picture like the 90s, early 2000s. It's like, okay, so like you want to do social justice stuff. You're going to like, and Indian immigrant parents. Okay. It was like, okay, you want to do social justice. Fantastic. You should become a lawyer or a politician or like, no, you're not going to go work for a nonprofit. And so I decided I'm going to become a lawyer and I did. And I thought I was going to work in a poverty law clinic or do social justice work, but I ended up, When I was in law school, I did well in school, like a good little nerd. And I was not an athlete. I was a nerd. And I got swept up into big law because this is where all the affluent, connected white kids were going. And frankly, as a first-year associate, I was going to make more money than both my parents combined, times whatever. I was like, are you kidding? Like, that's where I'm going. So I got swept up into working in the big towers which I did for many, many years. But here's my experience, what I found working and navigating the corporate world. And, you know, I talk a lot about this in my blogs online and on social media, on Instagram in particular. It's like the messages around bullied and don't be you, be like us, were never overt like they were when I was like, 12 years old and I was getting bullied in class about how my food smelled and my hair smelled and I smelled and whatever. Like I smell like goat curry, which I often did, but you know what? Who doesn't want to smell like goat curry now? Everyone wants to smell like goat curry. whatever, (laughs) Whatever. So It was always subtle. It was like, oh, you want to get ahead? Well, you should learn to ski and you should learn to golf and you should read sports headlines and you should talk like this and whatever. So I spent 10 years basically in the trenches of hardcore white, male, cisgender, hetero, elitist corporate world conforming and morphing and changing who I am to the point where I became really successful. And This is the problem with changing who we are to get ahead. Fitting in will never replace actual belonging because yes, we'll change and the doors will open, but it's a house of cards because the moment we start revealing more of who we are, love and affection and opportunities get taken away. And so after 10 years of making it and like all the external markers of success and looking great and sounding great, and I was in like doing all this stuff where like my name would be in the paper and blah, 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 or on TV and my parents are like, my immigrant parents are like, amazing, like ding, 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 we've done well. I felt spiritually vacant. I was unhappy. I felt soulless. And there were a few things that happened that were the catalyst of me changing my life. One of the most profound things I did, and again, I talk a lot about this in my book coming up, which is why this is so so fresh in my head and I'm able to share this with you so openly. I decided to take a sabbatical. I took a three-month leave of absence from my corporate hardcore job at a law firm, which is unheard of. And I went to India. To do my yoga teachers training, like my first training certificate, which was a deeply spiritual and transformational experience. What it did for me is that it unlocked my sense of understanding of who I am. Like it helped me to better come back to who are you, Ritu? Like who are you, Ritu Basin? Like, what are you about? Who are you? What do you love? What do you value? What kind of life do you want to have? Because up until then, I would say I became so lost. I didn't even know who I was. I was so whitewashed. I had internalized white supremacy to my core. So I was rejecting my brownness, except in some areas, and had internalized whiteness and embodied it to get ahead of so confused. And that was the turning point that ultimately led me to quit my job. I did an executive MBA because, again, if I was going to quit my job, my parents weren't, and the Indian socialization. I did an executive MBA finished it, quit my job. And I launched, started my own company, a DEI consulting firm. And that was like over 12 years ago. I thought, oh my God, will anyone hire me? And like, I've now presented to like hundreds of thousands of people globally, like all over the world. And in particular, I think one of the things that I am most proud of is I wrote a book called The Authenticity Principle, in which I talk about my journey of learning. How can I be more of who I am as much as possible, Whether that's with my family, my friends, my lovers, my parents, my bosses, leaders, clients, colleagues, workmates, random strangers. How can I do this on my terms and still meet performance expectations in the workplace, client expectations?
2: Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies
1: head on. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. patients
0: and navigate this world of conformity. I have deeply committed my life to authentic living and to belonging. This is what I want for everyone else.
3: That's so powerful. And I'm so glad you walked us through that. So my next question is, how can we intentionally create that culture of trust that you talk about? How can that happen in workplaces?
0: I come at this in two different ways. I come at this from the perspective of you're a leader within an organization because Here's the thing, a leader within an organization has heightened power and privilege because of rank supremacy, like you're higher up along the ladder. And so by virtue of you having rank supremacy over others, you control the culture. And so the most important people within an organization are the leaders because the tone at the top cascades down, which is why I think it's so important when we're wearing our leader hats that we do our best to be deeply vulnerable and personal about our own experiences. So, for example, you talking about how you have lived experience with depression, experiencing panic attacks, me talking about, for example, my own experiences with diminished mental health or with doing years and years of psychotherapy to help me heal. It's so important that we name this and talk about this so that... When we do it, we open the door for others to do the same. I call this the authenticity principle like this and then the, i don 't the name of my book, but the authenticity principle it 's basically a way of living and being working, leading that we embody where we consciously choose to reveal more of who we are. We know who we are. We embrace who we are. We be who we are as much as possible so that we feel more connected with ourselves. But then we bring this spirit into our interactions with others. And in doing so, authenticity is a lot like a magnet. The more I do this with you, the more you're going to want to do this back with me. And this is what causes us to create these meaningful connections. And then from a team perspective, this is what unlocks innovation and creativity and empowerment and psychological safety and belonging. And more. And so leaders have to go first. Like, if you want your team members to belong and to feel vulnerable to share about whatever it is, you got to go first. But you also got to clock and check your privilege because the problem in most workplaces, especially when we have homogeneous leaders, so mostly white, hetero, cis male leaders in place too much leader authenticity becomes the behavioral yardstick by which we measure performance. So the leader's authenticity becomes the barometer by which we measure what workplace meritocracy looks like. So as a leader, you have to adapt your behavior more to make room for other people's authenticity. So I think that's really, really important from a leader perspective. And then as an individual, what I would say is, there's so much that we can be doing. Like I have a, a model, of which I'm happy to share in our conversation today that I talk a lot about online called the three selves, but essentially it's about us courageously, despite feeling the fear of bias and judgment coming our way. Cause I can tell you based on my work and research, it's the fear of bias. You're going to judge me. You're going to take opportunities away. You're going to take love away. You're going to take your friendship away. If I show you or tell you, who I actually want to love and who I am and how I really would speak and how I would really dress and what my opinions are. You're going to take all your love and affection and opportunities away. It's the fear of bias and judgment that causes us suppress our authenticity. And so that healing work that I talked about is so powerful.
3: Please elaborate on the three selves.
0: So I, like you as a DEI workplace consultant and speaker, was finding, and even a like, guy did HR work for several years in the context of the legal work I was doing working in a, a legal profession. And what I found is that so many workplaces say things like this, we want our, our team, we want you to bring your whole true authentic selves at work. We've created a culture of authenticity where everyone can bring their whole true selves to work. Be yourself, be yourself. And that's in one breath. And then the very next breath is like, just kidding. No, you don't. Leave your differences at the door. Minimize your differences, push down your differences.
3: My mission statement is to use a difference to make a difference. So I, I'm in direct opposition. To... <laughs> but yes, it does resonate. It, it plays a role into why I did what I did and I do what I do now. So, yeah.
0: And even for me, I was like, how can we tell people to be who they are when we know that corporate cultures are rooted in conformity, forms of supremacy? Like, it's oppressive. You can't actually be who you are. And by the way, what does be yourself mean? Like, what does that actually mean? So that's what led me to create the three selves framework. So there are three selves. All of us have each of the three selves. I'm just going to take us through the continuum really quickly. Lots online. You can check it out and that can help you dig deeper. The most important stuff of all, the authentic self. I define the authentic self as who you would be if there were no negative consequences for how you're showing up. So if there were no negative consequences For how we dress, how we speak, what we talk about, how we use our voice, where we would draw boundaries, say yes to, no to. It's the good, bad, and ugly of who we are. There were no negative consequences to your actions. This is who we would be. That's your authentic self. And the question is, to what extent are you showing up as your authentic self at work in your personal relationships and even with yourself right now? Because it is the truest reflection of our core, it's the most important, it's in what I call the zone of empowerment. It's squarely in the zone of empowerment because it's that important. On the other side of the continuum is the third self, which I call the performing self. And by the way, we've been talking about the performing self the whole time. I use the word performing not in the sense of like high performance. I'm using it from the perspective of life is a stage and we are all actors on the stage putting out a curated image of who we are. We're masking and we're giving a Broadway production. We're acting our lives as opposed to being who we are. And so you can imagine that performing, masking your identities, changing who you are to fit in. And for those of you just listening and not watching, I'm doing air quotes, like fitting in. It feels humiliating, it feels exhausting, it feels exclusionary, it's disrespectful, and it's in the zone of disempowerment. But the problem is, and we know this from research, when we come from cultural communities that experience heightened oppression, of course we perform more, and it significantly impacts our health, our mental health, our spiritual health, our physical health, and more. So the objective after today is to push out of the performing self as much as possible. And so my question for you all listening, watching, is... To what extent are you showing up as your performing self at work in your relationships and even with yourself?
3: I feel like I'm listening to an echo or watching a mirror here, but this is great. And this
0: is what I said, Tayo. We are going to be best friends. And this is just the first conversation. I knew it. So <laughs> the middle self. We've never explored this self in this way before. I call it the adapted self. Your adapted self It's a really powerful self for a few reasons. First of all, when we explore our adapted self, we realize, wow, I have more agency, choice, and control over how I behave than I thought I did. Number two, we realize, wow, you know what? I'm actually living more authentically than I thought I was. And so I'm not a sellout because I constantly walked around feeling like I was a sellout, which is also stigmatizing. And by the way, we do this. Inter and intro group.
3: We do it to ourselves a lot of times. Yeah. That's
0: what I'm saying. Like, like brown people are calling me out. And it's like, listen, and I can tell you again, based on my work and research, it's like me anglicizing my name or cutting my hair as a sick or taking on white hobbies and activities like whining and cheesing and going to the opera. Like, I wanted to do that. I didn't do that deliberately. It was a coping mechanism. It was a survival mechanism. It was like, how else was I going to get through big law? And I can tell you, this is why I'll never use title. You will never hear me use the word inauthentic. I think the word inauthentic is judgmental. My experience has shown me that when people change who they are, they mask aspects of their identity, they start listening to opera when they don't want to, take up golf when they don't want to, i.e., me. We do it not because we're trying to be malevolent and mislead. We do it because we're wounded and we're hurt and we're scared. We fear not getting ahead. And so, this is why I'll never call someone inauthentic. I think it's judgmental. So, your adapted self, you have more agency. You realize you're being more authentic than you thought you were. And it's a really safe place to stay in situations where we don't feel comfortable revealing more of our authentic self. So, your adapted self is a self that says, okay, Ritu, I hear you. I am performing. I'm going to pull out of that. But I look over here at my authentic self and I can't be authentic 100% of the time because I want to keep my job, keep my family, not go to jail, blah, blah. And I am with you. No one can be authentic 100% of the times because we are humans, tribal, communal. We need mechanisms of social control to keep us regulated. So our adapted selves are the selves that willingly, happily, Choose to adjust our behaviors to meet our needs and the needs of others. The adaptation, the shifts that we make it 's a choice it feels good for us to do it 's still a manifestation of our authenticity. it serves us and it serves others and in fact, a lot of us are adapting all day long, like for example, before I came onto this podcast, I put on lipstick, okay, and I brushed my hair. After I'm done this, the lipstick's coming off and put my side scrunchie on, it's going to be great. Or I cuss like a pirate. I've already said one swear word. I'd be dropping F-bombs left, right, and center, but I try not to because I'm adapting. And then like once we go off air, I'll probably drop a few. We are all choosing to adapt our behavior to serve us and serve others. But because it's a choice, it feels good to do. And so here's a really important takeaway as well. I often get asked like when I'm speaking or like online, Rithu, what's the difference between adapting and performing? The difference is that when we're adapting, we're doing it by choice and it's serving us. Like it feels good. I choose, for example, not to swear. Or, or how about this? Let me give you another example. I spend a lot of time with C-suites of global companies, whether now it's and staring at a green light, or I'm on the stage and or I'm in a boardroom teaching. And these are rooms filled with white, straight, Older men. I know when I walk in, they look at me because as a brown woman in her forties, I look young. <laughs> Membership has its privileges. Anywho, so I look young, and they're like, "Oh, she's here to teach us about DEI." Like that's boring as f, and also she like fluffy, and I don't want to be here. I know they're judging me. Not all of them, some of them, and it's harder for me to gain trust. Where if I walked in as a white man teaching about directors and officers liability they would view me differently. So I will adjust my tone when I'm speaking for the first 10 minutes. And what I typically do is I slow down how I'm speaking and I will drop the pitch of my voice. It's a bit lower. I also intonate differently. And what I find is, well, what I'm essentially doing is I'm sounding more like a man, but I'm adjusting in such a way that I know will resonate with their ears. And then the moment I'm like, okay, I'm done with that, it's happening. I'm doing it by choice, strategically. And then, then I go back to my sing songy. My arms are flapping. I'm like doing my thing. I'm giving me now two things. First of all, if I feel like I have to do this throughout an entire speech, it would be too hard. I'd be into performing, and I would feel it in my body. Like I would start to sweat. I feel anxiety. I can also tell my stomach starts to churn, and I just feel the shutdown. So when we're into performing, our bodies will tell us this doesn't feel good. The other thing I'm going to say here, and this is why our exploration of who we are, as it relates to our authenticity, is so individualized. Some of you listening today would might be thinking, I would never ever change my voice. I would never drop my pitch. I would never change my intonation. I would never change the diction I use. I would never do that. And that's okay. Because each of us gets to decide what our adaptations are going to be. And we ought not judge others for what their adaptations are. We each live our own lives and journey in the ways that feel right for us. Let's not judge others. And everyone, actually, let's be real here, especially when we come from communities where we are constantly being judged. Let's stop judging each other in our communities, across communities of color, across communities that experience oppression, because forms of supremacy make our lives so hard as it is. We need each other. We should be there for each other.
3: Wow. Fascinated. Well, we could talk all day. I know you have to leave soon. So let me segue this way. You've given the artists a lot to chew on, especially with, with those three versions of sales. So if someone wants to dive into more of your work and then connect with you more, get your upcoming book and the book you wrote before, where can they find out all these pieces of information?
0: A few things you can do. First of all, you can check out com, my empowerment site, sign up for our mailing list because everything we do, we announce there. And... My book, The Authenticity Principle, you can even download the first chapter for free at RuthlyBeseen.com. My favorite way to hear from people is on Instagram. Like I, you could email me, but like it takes me forever to get back to people by email. I hate email. But if you DM me on Instagram in particular, it's like I have like a 24 to 48 hour response rate. It's actually really remarkable. Or LinkedIn, you can message me on LinkedIn as well.
3: Well, I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. Oh my gosh. I have so many, all these follow-up questions. So we're going to have to do more.
0: Can I ask you a question, Tayo? Sure. Is there anything I've said today that you like really captured you or like, where you're like, yeah, you know, I've been thinking about that. or That means a lot to me.
3: I always think about the self thing. For me, my entire goal is to dismantle and destroy any form of, you know, supremacy and people with that, Participate in that, you know, they're usually in my way, and I come across that in the workplace. I come across that in the education system and media. Identity always comes up, belonging always comes up, and the question of whether you can be your full self is usually the Be your full self without punishment. And as you were talking about the three versions of selves, I was thinking about where I fit into that. And, you know, when I was younger, before I started moving around a lot, I didn't even know any better. I was just like <laughs> this is myself. Then, you know, I, this kid who was the lonely only, and then I started realizing the consequences for being myself. And then I, I really became really good at figuring out how to code switch. And then I came to college and uh, I made a decision to stop doing that as more and to just be myself in almost, oh, I say almost, in almost any situation, I was okay with losing the opportunities. And so I was thinking of that where that pushback you brought up where someone would say, I- I'm just going to do this. And I found that the older I've gotten, the more okay with the consequences I am with. So th- that's where my mind was going. I hear you and I agree with you. I don't want us to start judging other people because we, especially have come from a pre- historically oppressed groups and we understand just what it's like sometimes for people to need to put foot on the table, you know, for people to feel safe. I was navigating the nuance of those thoughts.
0: (laughs) Listen, I think I love what you're sharing. It just shows you like once we are alive to how forms of supremacy permeate every single thing we do, we can't unsee it. We see the complexity and nuances. Nothing is just as it seems. And I think that this lens is both really difficult because it makes life harder in many respects. Conscious life is harder. But it also makes life so beautiful because we understand people and ourselves in a far deeper way. Like for example, and I'll be really quick here. I, um, it's, again, it's fresh on my mind because of my book, I am very mindful that my parents who were immigrants to the country, escaping a country that had just been decolonized after hundreds of years of rule by white people who pillaged people, resources, systems while there and left a... Bloodbath and mess. The partition, right? Exactly. I'm talking about partition. Good for you. And not a lot of people know about it, unless you come from that region of the world, that they did their best in how they parented and raised me. However, there were ways in which they raised me that hurt me and harmed me. And here I am in my 40s trying to navigate the hurt and harm from my childhood upbringing. One of the things that I have worked really hard to do and I'm still working through is I love my parents. I honor my parents. I'm so grateful for them, and I can still be honest with myself around the harmful ways in which they harmed me through their parenting. Nothing is simple. Nothing is straight. Life is hard. It's complex. People are complex. I'm complex. You're complex. The world is complex. And this is why having a conscious life is so important for us, because we see and understand those complexities.
3: I love that you bring this up. We have, I have these conversations with my mama and pops often. More often than not, we'll start to agree, but it's that balance. You understand why they did what they did and you love them. But at the same time, as you're coming more into your own, you're expressing yourself and you're saying, this wasn't okay. This is not okay. We're going to agree here and disagree here. And so it's part of that unlearning and relearning aspect of life.
0: This has been a delight. It has. It has.
3: Well, the only way to cap this delight is to ask you this final question, which is,
0: how do you use your difference to make a difference? I asked my guests all of this. Oh, such a good question. And you know, (laughs) I don't know. No one's ever asked me that question before. That is a question I have never been asked before. You know what? (laughs) Chances are that that will always be the case. (laughs) The thing that I do with my differences to make a difference is I talk about my differences. I no longer cloak my differences, hide my differences, mask my differences. I'm in my healing work and journey. I'm, doing my best to no longer be ashamed of my differences. And what I'm finding is that my differences actually, or my experience with my differences, not so different than other people. The more I share my story of struggling with my identity, the more I realize... So many other people are struggling with their identities, too. And these really actually aren't differences. The thing that's different is the fact that I'm actually naming it and standing in my power and owning it. And I think that's the most important thing that I am doing. I've made it my life's work to experience belonging for myself, with myself, and to help others to do the same.
3: Ritu Basin, everyone! Thank you so much! This has been a true pleasure, a delight, and I, I thank you for your authenticity. For your vulnerability and for your willingness to share both.
0: Thank you, Tyon. Thank you. Back at back at you, my new bestie. <laughs> hey, back. yes, yes, we have
3: to do this again. No, seriously, thank you so much. When we have more time, we'll definitely dive into more topics.
0: So good. Thank you. Be well. Bless everyone.
3: You well, Kings, Queens, and everyone. Till next time. Use a difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the ass told by nomads. Podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com.